Yes, I so appreciated um, Bill Brace's presentation this morning. It's interesting to see how the Lord um, arranges things uh, for us. So uh, before we get started, um, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning. We plead for a greater measure of your spirit to grasp in our hearts and minds the truth that is in Christ. We pray that his experience as the head of the divine human family might be ours. For this purpose he was sent into the world to reveal the Father in his own life. And we pray that as we look at your word, as we study and contemplate today, that this will not be simply a theory, an interesting thought process, but it will become our experience. And we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. This morning we will contemplate and study together the humanity of Christ, not so much from the perspective of the nuts and bolts and the exact human nature that he took, as uh, Bill Brace was talking about earlier, but from the perspective of the divine human family and what Christ's humanity means to us. The text that we will look at are taken from a series of sermons of W.W. W. Prescott at the General Conference of 1895. W.W. W. Prescott had taken in the messages of Minneapolis. They had warmed his heart and his, his mind. And he had entered into an experience. In fact, the entire series of sermons is available in a booklet by the same title, The Divine Human Family, and I'll recommend it to you. Uh, if you can get your hands on it. It's in print. Uh, I think several organizations have published it. I'd also recommend the follow-on sermons that Prescott had, the Armadale sermons in Australia, which further developed these practical presentations. And Alan White um, was sitting in the audience there in Armadale as we discussed Last year at our meeting, we were looking at some of the um, things that she had to say about what Prescott was presenting. I think Prescott's burden was not so much for uh, the theory to be right or all of the details necessarily to be fleshed out, but that, that God's call on us is to enter into an experience. To be a loving and lovable Christian we must have Christ dwelling in us or we cannot have that experience. Before we get into the study, I want to review a couple of statements here by Sister White, this one in First Selected Messages, and Bill referenced that just a little while ago. The humanity of the Son of God is everything to us. It is the golden chain that binds our souls to Christ and through Christ to God. This is to be our study. 
Christ was a real man, he gave proof of his humility in becoming a man. There's that humility. When we approach the subject of him being God in the flesh, we would do well to heed the words spoken by Christ to Moses at the burning bush. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. We should come to the study with the humility of a learner. You see, his humility, in order to understand it, we must experience that humility with a contrite heart. And the study of the incarnation of Christ is a fruitful field which will repay the searcher who digs deep for hidden truth. That's our prayer today, of course. And another one, I really appreciate the thought here. The Son of God lived a perfect life of obedience in this world. We need always, how often? Always to keep in view the truthfulness of the humanity of Christ Jesus. When Christ became our substitute and surety, it was as a human being. He came as a man and rendered the obedience of human nature to the only true God. He came not to show us what God could do, but what God did do. And what man, when he is a partaker of the divine nature, can do. It was the human nature of Christ that endured the temptations of the wilderness, not his divine nature. I might pause there and direct you to James chapter 1. If you have questions on the pre-fall or post-fall nature of Christ, read there in James chapter 1 how man is tempted and Jesus was tempted as a man. We could have a whole study on that, but we're headed in a different direction. In his human nature, he endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. He lived a perfect human life. That answers the questions of propensities, doesn't it? Tendencies are different than propensities. Jesus is everything to us. And he says to us, without me, ye can do nothing. The one object of Bible study should be not to establish theories, but to feed upon the living word and to develop a personal experience. We want to be able to live a life of disinterested benevolence, to be loving and lovable Christians. And really that is the purpose of studying the word, of feeding upon the word, which Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, that breath of life, that spoken word. Ephesians 3 verses 14 to 21 for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, there's the divine human family, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height? To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be full, filled with all the fullness of God. What's the purpose of the divine human family? It's to bring us into this experience as we join the family. Can we do that? In ourselves it's hopeless, but 
Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This text, I believe, encapsulates the principle and the purpose and the power of the divine human family. Acts 17 brings out this, the source of this principle in more detail. God who made the world and everything in it, verse 24, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Verse 26 in the revised version, and he made from one every nation of men to live on all the face of the earth. Who was that one? It was Adam. When he breathed in him the breath of life, it was the breath of lives. It was the breath of every living man and woman. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation. That is, we could say, Adam was the father of the human family as a human family. And when God created Adam, he created the whole human family in Adam. He created all nations that are upon the earth when he created Adam. That is, in creating Adam and conferring upon him the power to procreate in his own image, he saw, as it were, a fountain of life in him. And when he created Adam, he saw in Adam every human being that has been or will be upon the face of the earth. And he created every human being upon the face of the earth in Adam. This principle is further elucidated, described in Genesis 25-23 when the birth of Jacob and Esau is recorded and Rebekah is inquiring of the Lord, what's going on in here? Why is this conflict happening in my abdomen? The Lord tells her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So in Jacob, God saw all the descendants of Jacob. In Esau, God saw all the descendants of Esau. And so as he saw it, there were two nations struggling together. So we can see the principle developed in these scriptures that in Adam were all the descendants of Adam as he was the common father of the human family. We read this principle also where the writer of Hebrews is showing how Christ has a, a high priestly ministry that supersedes Abraham. And as I may say so, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So from God's perspective, he sees this connection of all the people that will come from Adam. But the first Adam 
passed on to his progeny a problem, the sin problem, problem of selfishness, the problem of trying to live independent from the life giver. But we have the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15 we read, And so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The second man, the Lord from heaven, sustains the same relation to his family that Adam sustained to his family. That is, he became the second father of the family. This is the new man that we are to put on. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we read, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, we read that you put off again, your, concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Young's translation literally says, which according to God was created in righteousness. Now, when we look at these scriptures, we can we should be able to easily see the teaching. Adam was the first man. By yielding to sin, he received sin into human flesh, and his flesh became sinful flesh. Christ was the second man, the second father of the human family. He did no sin. No guile was found in his mouth. After humanity and Adam had admitted sin into the flesh, that became the old man. And the old man is humanity with sin working in it. That is to say, the old man is humanity under the control of the devil. And those who are in that condition are spoken of by the Savior in John chapter 8 of being of their father the devil. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. The old man is humanity with sin working in it. The old man is humanity under the control and direction of the devil. The new man is humanity with divinity in it. And above all and first of all, the new man is Jesus Christ, which according to God was created in righteousness and true holiness. So we are instructed to put on the new man. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now, 
how did Jesus Christ become the second father of the human family? And what does it mean to us that he did become the second father of the human family? Well, it's told in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, taking it right to the root. Notice, it is because the children were partakers of flesh and blood that he himself also likewise took part of the same flesh and blood. Why? In order that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And you know that he was manifested, the Apostle John says, to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Notice what it says. You know that he was manifested. He was manifested to take away our sins. Now how was he manifested? He was manifested in the flesh by becoming partaker of flesh and blood. He was manifested. In the first chapter and second verse of 1 John, he says, For the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And he was manifested to take away our sins by taking part in flesh and blood, that he might be seen. We could look at him. We could see what is happening in his experience, in his humanity. Divinity was clothed with humanity, was manifested in humanity, that there might be a human side to divinity for the suffering. The suffering being tempted, the suffering of the weight of sin, that divinity might receive the wound, might be vulnerable, because prophecy said at the very beginning that his heel would be bruised. That must be in humanity. There must be a human side to divinity in order that divinity might suffer in humanity. But divinity must suffer to take away our sins. So divinity was manifested, put into humanity, clothed with a body, clothed with flesh, with our flesh in order that divinity might present a side capable of receiving the wound. So the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and he partook of the same flesh and blood in order that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil and might deliver them who through fear of death and death comes only through sin were all their lifetime subject to bondage. How did he take upon him that nature that flesh and blood? Well he did it by birth by being born of a woman and the agency through which he was born of a woman was the Holy Spirit as we read in Luke chapter 1 and the angel answered and said to her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. But he was also the Son of Man. And the head, the second head of the human family was a man, the new man, the divine human man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now what does it mean to us that Jesus Christ became the second head of this human family. It means this. Just as when Adam was created, all the members of the human family were created in him, so also when the second man was created, according to God in righteousness and true holiness, 
all the members of that family were created in him. It means that as God saw in Adam all the members of the human family, so he saw in Christ, the second father of the family, all the members of the divine human family. So he saw in him all his sons, all his daughters, all his descendants, all that belonged to the family, no matter whether they were born into the family yet or not. Before Jacob and Esau were born, God saw two nations there, no matter where, whether born into the divine human family or not, yet God created in Christ Jesus the new man all the members of the divine human family that should ever afterward be born into that family. Now the fact that Christ took our flesh and that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us means a lot more than that there was a good man that lived back then and set us a good example. He was the second father. He was the representative of humanity. And it was when Jesus Christ took our human nature and was born of a woman that humanity and divinity were joined. It was then that Jesus Christ gave himself, humbled himself, not simply for the human family, but to the human family. That is to say, Jesus Christ joined himself to humanity and gave himself to humanity and identified himself with humanity and became humanity. He became we. And we were there in him. It means that Jesus Christ in himself joined humanity and divinity to all eternity. To take our human nature and retain it to all eternity. And today he's our representative in heaven still bearing our human nature. And there is a divine human man in heaven today. The man Jesus Christ. Read it in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. There is a man sitting on the right hand of God. And we sit there in him. That is what this scripture in the seventh of Hebrews to which we have referred has illustrated how it is that God saw in Adam all the human family and how that when he created Adam he created all the human family. The scripture means a great deal more than that. Recall again even Levi who received tithes paid tithes through Abraham so to speak for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Levi paid tithes in him, for he was in the loins of his father. All that Abraham did, Levi did in him. And in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, for since by man came death, by man, notice the capital man, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now stop a moment. The first death came by a tree. Christ bore our, all our sins on a tree and that brought life back to all humanity, to the human family. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam is the man through whom death came. 
Christ is the man through whom comes the resurrection from the dead for all humanity. In Romans chapter 5 we read, Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until this law sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense for if by the one man's offense many died much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to the many. We read in the scripture keeping these principles in mind and the parallel between the first Adam and the second Adam what we gained through the first Adam what did we gain through the first Adam? Death passed upon all men even though the children of Adam did not sin like Adam they still suffered the consequences of his death because they were in Adam when he sinned. From the first Adam sin, transitory life, death. From the second Adam righteousness, life. What life? Eternal life in the second Adam. All did sin in Adam. One act in a point of time in the past. Continuing on in Romans chapter 5, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, through the one, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Resulted in justification. The word there for justification is also translated, you probably know, righteousness. So the contrast is between condemnation and justification or righteousness. Death came by sin, one man's disobedience. By one man's disobedience, many were made or became, many were constituted sinners. By the obedience of one shall many be made or constituted righteous. See the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. The first father of the family and the second father of the family. From one, judgment to condemnation. The other, justification of life. Through the disobedience of one, many were constituted sinners. Through the obedience of one, many were constituted righteous in him. And this idea further that Jesus Christ gave himself to us. Think of that for a moment. It's not that Jesus Christ is someone apart from us, as it were, entirely outside of our experience, our connection, simply came forward and said, I will die for man. What do we call that? A substitutionary atonement. No, he became man. 
And divinity was given to the human family in Jesus Christ. Divinity was joined to humanity by birth, by the incarnation. And Jesus Christ became flesh and blood relation, near of kin to every one of us. It's not simply a substitutionary atonement. It's a representative atonement. One of the key points of the 1888 Minneapolis message. We can read the foreshadowing of this in Leviticus 50, in Leviticus 25, sorry, verses 47 to 49, where it says, Now if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you, or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. Now, this is really where humanity is in Adam. Humanity is sold under sin. If humanity is able, it may redeem itself. Is humanity able to redeem itself? Most religions in the world teach that it's up to humanity to redeem itself. No, the gospel is that it's the next of kin who will redeem us. Well, who is that? Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 30, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. Hebrews 2, chapter 11, we read again, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you, and again, I will put my trust in him, and again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. John 17, 26, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Why did Jesus join himself to humanity? so that he might declare the love, the agape, of the kneeling Father in himself. And he would declare it to his brethren. And he did it. This, here, this passage in John chapter 17 is some of the last words that he spoke to his disciples. And he says, I have declared your name to them. And he would continue to declare it all the way to the cross and beyond. He's the second father of the family. I love that passage in Hebrews chapter 2. I want to be able to say the same thing someday.
here am I and the children whom God has given me. And I'm just a human father. Do you see the intensity of the love that Christ has for each of us? And how close he is to each of us. And he's not ashamed to call us his relatives. You remember in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus had his human family show up to see him. It's an important thing when your family shows up. You need to have the food on the table, the beds all made. You need to be ready to be a good host to your own family. But watch this. Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside they sent to him calling him. So they were calling him. What? Were they calling him to come out? And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, this shows the connection that he has with the new family, the divine human family. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Did you ever think of that passage in the context of the second Adam? This is what Jesus is saying. Whoever is born into this family of God is the closest relation to Jesus Christ. Closer than that of flesh and blood. And again in Luke chapter 11, you know, a mother's love is awesome. It's mysterious. How long does it take fathers to bond to these newborn children? However long it is, it's longer than it takes the mother. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. Can you imagine? She's thinking, oh, what a wonderful connection to have this wonderful man. But she's thinking in the human connection, the human terms. But he, he replied, he said, more than that. He didn't discount that. Do you see that? More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's a touching thought. She had this feeling of what wonderful blessing it must be to be so closely united to, to Christ as a mother to her child. But his reply shows us that the very closest ties, the closest possible ties are what tie us to Jesus. He's our brother, our father, our savior, our redeemer. And this is why the scripture teaches that you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power in Colossians 2 verse 10. How complete are we in him? 
Well, back to Hebrews chapter 7. Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, when he was still in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met him. We have seen that Jesus is the head of the divine human family. What did we do in him, the father of this spiritual family, this divine human family? And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's look at a few more texts to see that according to the general sense of the divine human family, and at the same time, we could look more strictly at the original text. We would read this, and the word was made flesh and dwelt in us. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. We're familiar with that text. 1 John 4, 13, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. So we have this general idea that Jesus was the manifestation of God in the flesh among men. But we also have this text in 1 John 4.13 where the same word is translated in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us. Not among us, but in us. Here's a few more texts. 1 John 3.24 Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And John 17, 21, Jesus' prayer again, not only for the disciples but for us, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also, they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. In all these texts, you can see that it would destroy the whole meaning to say among us. While it does not destroy the meaning in John 1.14 to say he dwelt among us, yet it seems to lose sight of the very best of the meaning. He was made flesh and dwelt in us, in our humanity. When he took flesh, he took humanity. All humanity centered in him. He became the father of this divine human family. He became the father by joining himself in this way to humanity and the flesh which he took and in which he dwelt was our flesh. We were there in him and he in us just as Levi was there in Abraham and just as what Abraham did Levi did in Abraham so what Jesus Christ in the flesh did we did in him and this is the most glorious truth in Christianity. It is Christianity itself. It is the very core and life and heart of Christianity. He took our flesh and our humanity was found in him and what he did. Humanity did in him. Let's consider this farther. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us 
in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that is when he put all those spiritual blessings upon Christ when he was here in the flesh he put those blessings upon us because he was made flesh and dwelt in us and we were there in him and the time when we were blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ was when those blessings were put on Jesus Christ who dwelt in us and the only question is for us have we enjoyed have we received the blessings that he gave us in him it says there in the fourth verse according as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world when he chose Jesus Christ he chose us in him and we were chosen before the foundation of the world in him not you and I as individuals chosen above other individuals and our salvation personally assured us as distinct from other people but everyone in him was chosen every member of this divine human family was chosen when he was chosen because we were there in him and because he was made flesh and dwelt in us when the father said to his son this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased if you've read that in Desire of Ages you're familiar God had beforehand spoken to humanity through Christ but at that moment of the baptism he spoke to humanity in Christ he spoke to all of us this is you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased in him did the thorns rest upon his brow in token of the fact that he bore the curse of the earth that he bore suffering for the earth that he was removing the curse from the earth and that he was bringing back the inheritance we obtained the inheritance in him and so he obtained the inheritance and redeemed the inheritance and bought back the inheritance we also have obtained an inheritance being what predestined there's a predestination God is predestined the human race in Christ to be saved for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him when the new man the divine human man the man Christ Jesus was created we were created in him when did he prepare the good works in which we are to walk he did it in himself in his experience what are we to do to walk in the good works that God has before prepared that we should walk in them not so much as an obligation we don't owe it but as a consequence he who says he abides in him should walk that way as well God prepared the works for us to walk in we were created in Christ Jesus for good works and God has prepared those good works ahead of time for us to walk in them how shall we walk in those good works we must walk in him and he must walk in us in Ephesians chapter 2 we read even when we were dead in trespasses he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in the Syriac version it says he has seated us 
in heaven in Jesus the Messiah. That's us. Just as much as in Adam all die, in Adam, or in Christ, we could say, we are sitting in the heavenly places in Christ. He came in our flesh, the flesh of humanity, and he took it to heaven after he had purged our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. We went there in him. Humanity is in heaven. We are humanity. Our flesh is there. We are seated there in him. Because he is the father of this family, and because every son is in him, just as Levi was in Abraham, and when Abraham paid tithes, Levi paid tithes in him, although he was not yet born. When Christ went to heaven, he's representing the entire human, divine human family. Every child of his went there with him. Every child is seated there in him. Thank the Lord. Think of what God has done for us as a human family to take our flesh, our sinful flesh, to unite himself to us, to become joined to us by birth, the closest ties never to be broken. That is the love of God in Jesus Christ. And he didn't simply come here to do something and then go back and take up where he left off. He invited the Father to treat him as the representative of all humanity. And so what he did, we did in him. And we received the benefits of what he did. What we have done, he did not do, but what but he was treated as if he had done it. And he received the punishment of that. But we received the benefits of that death to sin. He changed, he completely changed places with us. Knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. When he died, we died in him. One of my favorite texts, 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. All were dead but all died in Christ. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every one. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was tempted in all points like as we are. The temptations of humanity met in him. All of us like sheep have wandered each to his own way. He was wounded not simply at the cross, not simply in Gethsemane. He was wounded by temptation, continually tempted and tried to go, tempted to go astray. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We received those stripes in him. Therefore, 
this was a, there was a purpose in this. We read in Romans chapter 7, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Notice that form of expression. We became dead. In the Revised Version it says, you were made dead. It refers to a definite point in past time when this took place. And it took place in Christ. Now notice further on this idea in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore when he came into the world he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In the Syriac version it says, You have clothed me with a body. He was made flesh and dwelt in us. So we were the body and he put us on in order that we might put him on because the scripture says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. But we could never put him on unless he had first put us on. In Hebrews chapter 10 we read, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How is it possible that we should be made or were made dead to the law through the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 8 we read, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The body that he took, in which he was made flesh and dwelt in us, we being there in him. That body of flesh was a body of sinful flesh. We read in Romans 8 verse 3. So we can be sure it was like ours. When he was offered he paid the penalty of the law and we were there in him. We became dead to the law through that body because humanity, humanity in which divinity was enshrined was paying the price. Divinity and humanity were joined in the body of Christ and that Sin paying its wages in death happened in Christ. The Lord caused to land on him the iniquity of us all, we might say. And we were there at the punishment. So we became dead to the law. To the law of sin and death. But we also became alive to the law in Christ. Christ in the law and the law in Christ. This is why Paul could say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The King James says, the faith of the Son of God, the faith of Jesus. In Colossians 2 verse 11, in him you also, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now you recall the Judaizers were big on circumcision, but they had it backwards. When did the circumcision, when did our circumcision happen? It happened in the experience of Christ. We were circumcised by him cutting off the deeds of the flesh. And everything that he did you see, Paul is describing we did in him. The only question we really need to settle is, are we in him? 
Do we agree with him that we are part of the divine human family? Do we humble ourselves and die to the old man taking on the new man? What about Christian experience? It is all in him. If we do it, it is in him. If we strive, it is in him. It is all in him. And our experience in the Christian walk can be summed up this way. What we did in him then, without any choice on our part, he is to do now in us by our choice. Then we will have plenty of Christian experience of the right kind. We will be loving and lovable Christians. All this that we did in him was without our choice or consent, without asking us if we would like it done. He came and took our flesh. He dwelt in us. He did it in us. And in that representative sense, we did it in him. We didn't ask for it. Well, we didn't ask for Adam's choice either, did we? Now he wants for us to choose to let him do it in us as well. Will we remain in him? Will we continue to choose him and be in him? That is Christian experience. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, we read, When it pleased God, who separated me from my father's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. This is Paul talking about his experience. And what did God do in Paul's experience? Paul says, he revealed his son in me. This is the experience that the Minneapolis, the 1888 message is calling us to. An experience of Christ in us. God revealing himself in us as he revealed himself in Christ. Paul writes to Timothy and says, however for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And further in 1 John chapter 4 verses 2 and 3 the Apostle John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Are we wanting the Holy Spirit, the latter rain? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So, are we wanting Christ in our flesh? That's the question. We need not place the obedience of Christ by itself as something for which he was particularly adapted because of his divine nature, for he stood before God as man's representative and was tempted as man's substitute and surety. If Christ had a special power which it is not the privilege of man to have, Satan would have made capital of this matter. But the work of Christ was to take from Satan his control of man, and he could not do this, and he could do this, only in a straightforward way. He came as a man to be tempted as a man, rendering the obedience of a man. Christ rendered obedience to God and overcame as humanity overcame. And as we overcome, we are led to make wrong conclusions because of erroneous views in this matter. 
To attribute to his nature a power that it is not possible for man to have in his conflicts with Satan is to destroy the completeness of his humanity. The obedience of Christ to his Father was the same obedience that is required of man. Man cannot overcome Satan's temptations except as divine power works through humanity. The Lord Jesus came to our world not to reveal what God and his own divine person could do, but what he could do through humanity. And through faith, man is to be a partaker of the divine nature to overcome every temptation wherewith he is beset. It was the majesty of heaven who became a man, who humbled himself to our human nature. It was he who was tempted in the wilderness and who endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. Are you glad that you're part of the divine human family? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, for revealing yourself in humanity. And we pray, Lord, that you will reveal yourself in our humanity. May we believe and experience what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Greetings, friends. Pastor Rob Bernardo here from Michigan's historic Battle Creek Tabernacle. What you've been watching is just one of the many presentations from the 2020-1888 National Conference called It's Midnight. And I would say that's a pretty appropriate title for the times in which we live, wouldn't you? You know, I think we're all looking for that fourth angel of Revelation to come down upon this dark world with his light and glory. And I believe that is going to happen soon. Think about it. Jesus' finest hour was also the hour of the power of darkness. And so it will be with his church in the last days. The greatest days for both his church and his gospel are yet to come. So keep studying, keep sharing. You'll see the web address below. There are many other presentations to watch. And so may God bless you. May you be found faithful when he comes.